2: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that
3: But we also see, and we also know, that it gives voters a way to cast their ballot and make sure their voice is heard safely from their homes. And it also, it helps keep communities safe as well.
2: This is Sarah. And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this exciting week in which we are celebrating our 500th episode of Pantsuit Politics. Please be sure to join us on Friday for a real celebration of the journey from episode one to episode 500. We're going to talk about what we've learned. We're going to review some funny moments along the way. And it's just going to be a community event. We really want to celebrate all of you because you're what really makes this podcast special. As
4: we were sharing some of our reflections on Instagram this weekend, I just kept hearing the line from Watershed by the Indigo Girls. Every five years or so, I look back on my life and I have a good laugh. Mm. And I think that is definitely the spirit of this celebration. We just want to look back with warm hearts and grateful minds and celebrate with all of you.
2: Also, have a really special episode for you today. In our main segment, we're going to really explore a theme that we've been returning to as we've talked about coronavirus. And that theme is that as much as coronavirus feels like it's created a lot of new problems, it's actually exposed some existing ones. So, you're going to hear from experts in elder care and education and the environment, elections, even a death expert to talk about how COVID 19 has really accelerated the need and opportunity for big, changes across our society. But before that, we'll do some headline news and we'll end as we always do with what's on our minds outside of politics.
4: The first huge news story to break over the weekend was that sources within United States intelligence agencies have concluded that earlier this year, Russian forces were offering bounties to Taliban-backed fighters in Afghanistan to kill American soldiers. This is in the midst of the peace negotiations between the United States and the Taliban. And there's all this reporting where everyone is being so careful to say, we have this intel, it came through the White House. President Trump and the administration have not chosen to respond. And we're just really we don't know the motive. We we're not clear on the motive, which I don't understand. Of course we know the motive. We are basically In a drawn out, you can call it conflict, you can call it war with Russia. They meddled on our election. This is a massive escalation of that conflict. And I don't know why we're all being so careful to tiptoe around that
2: reality, which this story clearly reveals. Yeah, I think... It's really important to think about the larger context of this story for multiple reasons. As you said, everything we know about Russia, not just vis-a-vis the United States, but think Mm -hmm. about Russia's aggression toward Ukraine, which we have made all about us in America because of the president, but is not all about us. It's very much about Ukraine, you know. What we know about Russia's actions towards Ukraine, its actions towards us, its actions in Western Asia, tell a coherent story about Putin's desire to be a territorial and Mm -hmm. militaristic superpower again. I think that's one piece of really important context. The other thing that I can't stop thinking about in connection with this story is the Washington Post blockbuster reporting from several months ago about our efforts in Afghanistan. So if you think about our soldiers having been in Afghanistan for so long with the United States government knowing for so many reasons that we were not fulfilling a coherent mission there and that we were not succeeding along any coherent set of metrics and then you layer on to that this information that our soldiers who are still there trying to do something good with very little help from Washington, D.C., in clarifying what that good is and getting what they need to do it, are now being hunted down by Mm -hmm. Taliban militants while our government is bragging about negotiations with the Taliban. And that's being paid for by Russia? This is the most insulting, anti-democratic, scary abandonment Of the American military and the American people that I can imagine. And so over the course of the last few months, if
4: you believe these sources in this reporting that the administration was alerted to this in March, they deny that. They deny that the president or the vice president was briefed on this. You can decide who you'd like to believe. They not only didn't respond, but basically continued this campaign to increase Russia's standing in the United States and around the world. He had a call with Putin that he praised. They allowed the withdrawal of several thousand troops from Germany, which is to support NATO and prevent Russian aggression, just like we saw in Crimea. I mean, to know that there were bounties on American soldiers that they believe soldiers lost their lives and were paid and the Taliban backfires were paid bounties for those loss of lives and not to take any steps to push back, but rather to be propping up Putin. And his regime is just disturbing. You know, um, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are big fans of Heather Cox Richardson. She's a historian and she has a really good list of all these actions they've taken to continue to promote Putin within the Trump administration that I highly recommend. We'll put a link in the show notes it's shocking. It is shocking. And you hear that shock and dismay from members of the intelligence community, from members of the military, from particularly uh, members of Congress whose experience crosses over with the intelligence community and the military community. They are furious that they were not briefed. They want to know everything. Congressional leaders, all members of Congress, but particularly with those with that level of background. And they're right. They're right to be outraged.
2: I don't know how anybody thinks no one briefed me on this makes this better. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. But if that's true, that is as scary as the report itself. That the president wouldn't be briefed on something like this. What kind of operation are you running? If you aren't briefed on something like this, that makes absolutely no sense to me. I think it's shocking that members of Congress weren't briefed on the existence of this intelligence, even if they concluded at some point that the intelligence was not credible, which happens, right? That happens all the time. The existence of something that is this big of a deal should be disclosed to the relevant congressional committees. And there should be discussion about transparency with the American people, transparency with the military. They may ultimately conclude not to do that, but for them to not know and have that opportunity to weigh in on something of this gravity, that to me makes this even more scandalous, not less. And I think this is related to our main segment,
4: which just like China, Russia is taking the crisis that is the global pandemic sort of distraction, perhaps, of the world to accelerate its push for territory, strength, global power, whatever you want to call it. Now, just like in the United States, it's also accelerating uh, dissatisfaction with the leadership. And I think Putin is struggling with that in his own country, but that doesn't mean he's stopping what he's been doing for years, which
2: is trying to expand his power. And that's something to really consider as we make future electoral decisions. When you elect in the United States or continue to have an office by a number of means, in the case of other countries around the world, these strong men leaders understand that as they get pushed into corners, they become even more dangerous. I am concerned about all of the things piling up in President Trump's face right now that work against him. There is so little good news for President Trump right now that it honestly makes me anxious about what he will do next. I feel that about Putin. I feel that about Xi Jinping. I feel it about President Erdogan in Turkey. You know, Brazil. Brazil, exactly. This is – there is always a risk – a huge one in electing that kind of figure or having that kind of figure imposed on you. The risk is substantially increasing as crises unfold. And I just think if you are sitting in the United States on the fence about the direction you're going to go in the next election, you must take into account the global stage and how important a steady hand to bring us out of this is going to be. The Supreme Court has released several new decisions,
4: including a very important decision regarding a Louisiana abortion law, the opinion with the four liberal justices, and a joining concurrence by Chief Justice Roberts over here holding back the floodwaters once again is almost identical to a law Texas passed passed. Um, that had previously been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. These laws require that abortion providers have admitting privileges at local hospital, but they have the effect of closing down clinics and dramatically reducing access to care. And they were found to be an undue burden on a woman's constitutional right to choose. And so the four liberal justices joined in the reasoning that is uh, still relevant Uh, as just as relevant as it was under the Texas case, which wasn't even that long ago, but whatever. And then Chief Justice Roberts concurred on the basis of precedent that they'd already heard this case. So I think it's a small but significant victory for reproductive rights in this country. Um, I don't think it's the last time that we'll be talking about the Supreme Court and reproductive rights, but I'll take what I can get.
2: Sarah, could you take a second and connect those dots for people? Because I do think there are folks who wonder why this requirement to have admission privileges at a hospital would translate into a burden on the right to choose?
4: I think that it's really the best quote is it was a lower court justice that says that it's a solution in search of a problem. The requirement is very onious on the abortion providers for lots of reasons. Political, I would think, being one of them. Hospitals don't want to give admitting privileges to Physicians that work in other clinics, I mean, especially if they're not on their payroll, you're talking about liability, you're talking about, I mean, it's just, it's a big uh, controversial lift. And what you see is it's not necessary. You know, I think in one of the, it was either the Louisiana case, I think it was the Louisiana case, they were citing that this clinic had provided. 3,000 women with services and four had needed follow-up care and they were able to get to a hospital and get the care. You know, if you if you come to a hospital and need a medical care, they don't say, oh, well, where's the doctor that treated you? Do they have admitting privileges at this hospital? They give you the care you need. It implies, too, I think that doctors already at the hospitals can't, what, treat the woman? They don't understand uh, the basic reproductive system or concerns that could come about from a surgery. It just, it doesn't, make any sense. It was done because of the burden it would place on clinic providers and the fact that the, it shuts the clinics down. When the doctors can't get admitting privileges as they're required to under the law, the clinics have to shut down. I mean, it would take Louisiana from having four providers to a single provider for the entire state. I mean, four providers isn't enough for the, the entire state. A single doctor certainly isn't. And that's what they were designed to do. They weren't designed to protect anyone's health or safety. They were designed to create one more hoop for the clinics to jump through expensive hoops and to put even more burden on these clinics. So they shut down.
2: There are two reasons that this case made it to the Supreme Court. Usually when we have a case that is the exact text of a statute nearly that has already been declared unconstitutional, that wouldn't get to the Supreme Court because lower courts would say, well, we're applying the Supreme Court precedent and that resolves this case. Really, two things happened here that got the case to the Supreme Court. The first thing is that the Court of Appeals in this case decided that the law had a lesser effect in Louisiana than it had in Texas, They said Louisiana's legislature went through a more extensive fact-finding process. They found some evidence, minimal, but some evidence of health benefits associated with the law. And so because of the legislative process and because of differences between Louisiana and Texas, the Court of Appeals found it distinguishable on the facts of how the law would be applied. The second thing that got it to the Supreme Court is that the plaintiffs in this case were abortion providers and clinics, not women seeking abortions. And so in the dissents, you have this extensive conversation about who can assert the fundamental right to an abortion. Now, you have that conversation taking place among justices who are skeptical that that right exists. Right. So you have to remember that as a justice is writing about standing, are you the right person to be in court here? They also probably have a sense that this right, as we talk about it, was wrongly established in the first place. But there is a discussion to be had about whether an abortion clinic and provider can assert a substantive due process right ultimately belonging to a woman seeking this care. So that's how it got to the Supreme Court. And what's really interesting about Chief Justice Roberts joining the majority justices as to the outcome of this case is that he dissented in the Texas case that Sarah was telling you about. He believes that case was wrongly decided, but he still thinks that that case is precedent. It's good law and we uphold it now. And so he really thread a pretty small needle Mm -hmm. here. He's getting really good at it. (laughs) He's getting lots of practice. And then all of the other conservative justices wrote their own dissents here. Justice Thomas (sighs) on standing grounds. Justice Alito takes issue with the standard being applied to assess this and writes a lot about sending this back to the district court for more fact finding under a different standard. Justice Gorsuch says this case is not about Roe versus Wade at all. It's about how we Respect legislative decisions. It's about standing. It's about the standard applied. All of these procedural mechanisms are what's really going on. And I know they're a pain, he says, but we should lean hard into them when we're deciding cases about the most controversial issue in American politics. And then Justice Kavanaugh totally agrees with Justice Alito, but because he can be very precious on the court, had to write separately to say so. You know
4: what I think, big picture, with regards to reproductive rights? I don't think the battle on this particular front is over as far as making the operation of clinics more and more difficult. I also think that the reality is probably in five years, if not sooner, the majority of women receiving abortion services in the first trimester will be using pills, which are safe and effective and easy to use and be cared for from from home and really... In a lot of ways, sort of, they don't negate these battles, but they, I think, change the impact of this long-standing. Um, we're just going to shut the clinics down and shut the clinics down and shut the clinics down when women can gain access to abortion services through um, pharmaceuticals. I just, I think that's sort of the, the way this is playing out in real time. And I think, you know, this expanding use of pharmaceuticals is really positive because it expands access in a way that is more difficult to attack and undermine the way that these laws are used to undermine clinics.
2: And, you know, that's the kind of shift where I wish we could have a reasonable conversation about the safety, the ethics The way the technology is going to change even beyond pharmaceuticals in this area and what that means. You and I have talked before about that sort of European style commission where people get together to think about the ethics of medical decision making in the technological age. And we're so stuck in literally the same fights, right? This is literally a new state taking a swing at the same legislation from another state. Um, and we're still stuck in a world where we don't have enough health care for everyone. One reason that laws like this make it so difficult for providers to comply is that in many areas, the only hospital is a religious hospital where that hospital fundamentally is never going to give admission privileges to an abortion provider because it is so against the hospital's code of ethics And that is both fine and it is also not acceptable for an entire community to have only that hospital as its healthcare choice, right? So there's just so much going on here that we could do real work on and we're not doing it. And speaking of areas where there's real work to do that we're not doing, as we're recording this morning, we are at 2.5 million confirmed COVID-19 cases in the United States, 125,000 plus deaths. Friday, we saw our biggest single day increase in cases. And while in some cases that increase correlates to expanded testing, in many it does not, the CDC is telling us that it thinks the total infections could be 24 times higher than reported. So
4: that is an excellent transition into our main segment of the show where we're talking about how this particular crisis and pandemic is really revealing problems, in some cases accelerating them, but also sometimes accelerating access to solutions and really the re-envisioning and new understanding of how to solve some of these problems.
2: We're going to go on a little bit of a journey during this segment because we have talked with five different people who have different areas of expertise to share with you the effect of coronavirus in their industries or specialties. And the first thing we want to do is just let you hear each of their voices. We want to introduce our five guides to you, and then we're going to talk with them about different aspects of this crisis.
4: First up, you're going to hear from Marissa Pyle of Fair Fight.
3: So my name is Marissa Pyle. I am the volunteer and rapid response organizer at Fair Fight. I am from Georgia, live in Georgia, have lived here most of my life. I got involved in politics a few years back, and then through working on voting and on the Abrams campaign in 2018, and then everything that came after that with all of the attention around voting rights that we've seen in Georgia and around the country,
2: I wound up at Fair Fight. The next voice you're going to hear is Hal Connolly, and he'll tell you a little bit about what he does now.
5: I'm Hal Connolly, the Policy Director of the Client Reality Project, Client Reality Project the nonprofit founded by our chairman, former vice president Al Gore in 2006. And we help increase awareness and educate people and to create activists around uh, addressing the climate crisis. So one of our main programs is doing really large trainings around the world and teaching people how to give their version of vice president Gore's iconic slideshow. And um, so, yeah, we've, now have 140 chapters in the U.S. and 10 branches around the world, and working hard to to address the climate crisis. And here in the U.S., the the work has been a little difficult the last few years.
4: We are also honored to have the Lieutenant Governor of our home state of Kentucky, Jacqueline Coleman, here to share her thoughts on. COVID-19 and the problems it's revealed in education? When I talk about this pandemic, I, I say that it, the coronavirus has certainly created
0: new problems, but we cannot deny that it has compounded old ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those, in, in my mind, and this is something that uh, when the governor and I were running, we were very focused on equity in education um, and and the idea that equity is not equality. So every kid does not need the same thing. Uh, but providing equity means that we get every kid what they need. And that's really hard to do because there are so many different circumstances um, for families, right?
2: especially right now. Sarah's local coroner also joined us to talk a little bit about death certificates. So here is Amanda Melton.
6: If you look at the television program list, you'll notice that the majority of shows are about unsolved murders, uh, complicated family situations. Actually, even when I was a funeral director for many years, it's just the death industry in general and particularly death investigations are a major curiosity to people.
4: And Beth spoke with longtime supporter of the show and really so insightful about elder care and our health care system. Janice Elliott.
1: I'll give you a little bit of my background. I um I live in Northern California. I'm a certified hospice and palliative nurse. Um, I don't work inpatient. I work in people's homes. So I visit people in private homes. I visit people in uh, facilities, in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, uh, big and small. So, you know, I get a pretty good slice of elder care outside of a hospital setting. Um, So I've had a lot of years to kind of witness these pitfalls. um, And there were many, you know, COVID is Is a problem, but there were many problems. Uh, For the last few years, uh, anytime I can get someone's ear, I like to tell them about the the gray wave. (laughs) You know, we are anticipating a massive wave of um, senior citizens as the baby boomers are getting older. Um, I was reading that by 2030, one in five uh, Americans will be over 65. So that's a staggering number of people that are you know, in some ways entering the best years of their lives, but in some ways, you know, things are gonna really start to change and they're gonna start to need a whole new level of support, you know, for them to continue to live the kind of independent lives that that they want. We are special
4: breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting, Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash Pantsuit.
2: So the first big question that we wanted to ask each of our experts is what has coronavirus revealed or shifted and Sarah you said and I, I thought you were a little bit bananas when you said this I'm going to be honest with you like let's talk to my coroner but as I started listening to you and especially as I heard your conversation with Amanda I got it because this speaks so much to our lack of trust in institutions and the way we are quick to embrace conspiracy theory about things we don't understand
4: You know, I think that COVID-19 has made everybody an expert in death certificates, which I find fascinating. Yes. Everybody is all all of a sudden a coroner, and they understand death certificates. And what do you think these hobby coroners are missing (laughs) in the conversation around COVID-19?
6: Well, uh, quite a bit, actually. There are very few people who actually have even seen a death certificate or even less who've actually filled out a death certificate. So usually when this topic comes up, is one of my first questions is have you ever seen a death certificate? And someone might say, yes, I looked at my grandfather's. I'm like, okay, were well, you talking to someone who has had a hand in hundreds of death certificates? And if there's a document in this world that I understand it is a death certificate, and there are only two classifications of people. I'll speak for Kentucky because I don't want to say worldwide, but in Kentucky, there are only two classifications of people who can become a medical certifier of death, and those are physicians and coroners. And so this idea that nursing homes, hospital staff, um, you know, funeral home staff, that they are able to sign out a death certificate, it's just, that's error number one. Um, So that's just not true. So, you know, as as the coroner, of course, I do sign out many, many, many death certificates. So I understand the document forward and backward. Um, It's a multi-step situation, like where the initial biographical information is collected by the funeral home. Uh, that's not the same thing as collecting or certifying the death. That's just your initial uh, probably one-third of the form. And then it comes to either the medical certifier, you know, and that's where, where I come in. So this idea that there's this vast conspiracy would actually take the collusion. It would require the collusion of thousands of people in the United States to make this financial gain, you know, the motivation, and and I'll just say this that as an elected official, first of all, it's unethical of me to accept any type of financial gain for certifying a death. So that's that's not even on the table, and I'm sure that doctors are under the same ethical, um, you know, concern and restrictions that that I am. So. I don't believe that they alter and tamper death certificates. I, I hold them to a very high standard as well. And who would be the person who would gain financially? You know, i that's the part in this that I haven't ever uh, been able to rectify.
4: Well, and here's my thing. What do you, you know? We're always saying like COVID is just exposing problems, not creating them. So when you see these conversations or you hear people talking about death certificates and causes of death, what do you hear that you think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of like either the human body or how people die or it's reflective of Americans' discomfort with death? Like, what do you think that this because conspiracies always come up because there's something people don't understand. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what do people not understand about this?
6: Well, I I would say overall, it's just uh, it's people making a very complicated situation trying to boil it down to something very simple, and it's just not. It's a it's a very that's why we have death investigators. That's why I am what I am. That's why doctors um, take their time in filling out death certificates. Um, And I'll say this: it's kind of interesting. I have you know a little bit of anxiety as a human being anyway, but. When I log in to Vital Statistics and I have to certify death, it says, I, Amanda Milton, attest that to the best of my knowledge and ability, this is the true cost of death. So first of all, I'm I'm agreeing to that. So when I click yes, it asks me again, are you sure you're ready to submit this? You know, and if you're a person like I am and you know that that is the official record of death, then there's a little bit of, you know, pause there before you hit, yes, please send this and certify this. I'm sure that doctors feel the same way. It's just a very complicated and um, and heavy responsibility of our job. But back to your original question, yes, I feel like it's just the oversimplification of a very complicated process.
4: Another area That has come up again and again in COVID-19 coverage is nursing facilities. And, you know, I think as both of us read these articles and started to think about this issue, we thought like this. I think this is the truest embodiment of this is not creating a problem. This is revealing a problem with elder care and Janice had already reached out to us and we'd had previous conversations with her about this particular area of American life. And we knew we had to talk to her about this problem.
1: Elder care is very, very expensive. Um, A lot of people kind of start with their family and friends helping out, which can be good in the beginning, but it's not a sustainable system and it wasn't before COVID and it won't be after Um, unpaid family caregiving in the U S is a huge expense. Uh, We, don't pay these caregivers uh their work is worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year and last year um, we have 43 unpaid caregivers uh doing senior care last year um in 2019 so that number is just going to continue to go up um as there are more you know seniors seniors to help with so when family can't get help um then we can hire people to come in there are lots of uh, agencies that, that you can hire, but they're also expensive. You um, you can't just have someone come in for like half an hour. I need, I need this or that. You have to commit to a certain amount of hours. You have to, you know, spend so much money to get the services. And that doesn't always work for people. Um, and it can be hard to have people you don't know coming into your home. Um, In California, one of the programs that we have that that is helpful is it's called IHSS, it's in-home support services. So family members can actually be paid a little more than minimum wage, um, X amount of hours per week to care for their loved ones. So that is something that's helpful here, but not all states do that. so cost is, is a big problem, and also um, there's a lot of stigma with these facilities, and a lot of people just have a, a severe knee-jerk reaction. No, I can't. I don't want to live in these places, um, and so that's difficult because you have to change hearts and minds sometimes to help people understand really what the best path is for everybody involved in someone's care. You know, because I've seen a lot of families where. Everybody bends over backwards to keep someone at home, and it's more detrimental, you know, so um, there's a lot of difficult conversations and a lot of consensus that has to happen that that's challenging with our belief structures with aging and and senior care. Um, other problems with uh, elder care uh, that um, we have seen become comes with covid are how people who work in the facilities are treated. Um, Pay is poor, Um, they work long hours, it's hard work, it's very hard work, especially when you're working in memory cares, Um, people with dementia, that work can be extremely challenging Um, and these people don't get paid well. Right now people are working, you know, long hours, Um, they're working a lot of doubles, high, high turnover. Um, In nursing homes in the U.S., our our turnover in uh, Excuse me. In nursing homes in the U.S., the nursing turnover is 74%. Um, so it's very hard to keep staff um, for long periods of time in facilities like skilled nursing and assisted living. It's very hard work. Um, so those were all kind of things that we are experiencing before this, you know. Um, and kind of going back to the cost, I'll just kind of explain. Medicare does not – will we'll not pay for um, – someone to go and live in a facility only under certain circumstances. So Medicare will pay for 100 days um, of skilled nursing services in a skilled nursing facility. If you've had a qualifying hospital stay, which is three, three nights in the hospital usually. Um, so they'll pay for, for hundred days of skilled nursing after something like that happens, but they will not pay for someone to just live like someone who's older and frail and has nowhere to go. That's not paid for by Medicare. Um, Medicaid or Medical, like we call it here in California, will pay for room and board. Um, but somebody has to completely exhaust all their um resources before they typically, you know, can get Medicaid. So there's not a lot of great options. And then a lot of people ask me about long term care insurance. Um, so long term care insurance, yes, is is a good idea, but realistically, most people don't have it. Um the United States and the UK are two of the Western countries, we don't, we don't have universal long-term care. Um, and so about only 2% of Americans purchase and keep long-term care, even though 25% of us will need it. So that's a pretty big um, problem. It's <laughs> and, hard to um, get to, isn't like,
2: it? I mean, aren't those policies really difficult to, to obtain?
1: Yes, they are, and they're very expensive. Um, Most of the people that I see here in California who use long-term care insurance, they work for the state. It is rare because it is so expensive. And most people just, they can't justify putting all that money up front when they don't know what's going to happen, you know, down the road.
2: So Janice talked to us about the very real way that COVID-19 is impacting skilled nursing facilities and all the adjustments that are having to be made in real time to deal with that impact, That is a good segue into the adjustments in real time we're having to make to deal with the effect of COVID-19 in education. And as Sarah said earlier, we're so privileged to have our Lieutenant Governor who is leading the effort here in Kentucky on how to reopen schools. And so she's gonna talk a little bit about how she viewed issues in education before COVID and what we need to do to give schools the room they need to adjust to this new reality.
0: The coronavirus has certainly created new problems but we cannot deny that it has compounded old ones Mm -hmm. Um, and one of those in in my mind and this is something that uh, when the governor and i were running we were very focused on equity in education um, and and the idea that equity is not equality so every kid does not need the same thing uh, but providing equity means that we get every kid what they need. And that's really hard to do because there are so many different circumstances um, for families, right? especially right now. Um, but I think our equity is probably most, um, there's, there's a big, a huge disparity uh, when you start talking about access to technology and access to uh, Wi-Fi and broadband. Uh, those seem to be the areas where once we went, um, it, every school in Kentucky went full digital um, at the drop of a hat. I mean, I got to give a shout out to every teacher mm-hmm. and administrator in every school district because they made it happen fast. Um, but when we realize that some kids don't have technology and then some of them might, but the, the Wi-Fi is not, especially like an out in rural Kentucky um, is not great. Then those are the things that we have we have been uh faced with that we have absolutely got to address because we don't have the luxury of time anymore.
6: Yep.
4: Well, it's like in our own school district. When it first happened, they asked, well, do you have access to the internet? Well, the answer might be yes. Do they have enough access to do non-traditional instruction for a couple hours a day? Probably not. Like, it's just so hard to even know what to ask or the different levels of what you're dealing with. And I think the way this sort of exposed this problem or compounded it, like you said, is look, any teacher will tell you they were already dealing with in-person classrooms, a wide array of access, a wide array of skill sets and deficits and abilities and all this stuff. And so now not only do you have to deal with that, (laughs) you have to layer on top of it and really um, see the manifestation of resources and internet access and um, techno- technological access because you can get, like you said, you can give everybody a laptop, but if they don't have Wi-Fi when they get home, what good is that going to do? And well, I think what's so hard is, you know, and I, this is where I really want to hear your perspective as a former teacher and a state official is it's this paradox in that many ways, yes, each individual county. Is best suited to understand where those problems and equity are, and also we need the resources of the state to say, okay, well, let us let us get the access to the to the technology. Let us um, sort of roll out plans so that you can use us as a sort of like a resource guide or a gathering. Especially, it feels like with technology and Wi-Fi. And so, I'm wondering in your seat how are you seeing the role of the individual school districts and the state when trying to tackle these problems, the state government?
0: So I, I think, um, the, you know, the benefit of, of me being um, Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of Education in Kentucky right now is that I was a classroom teacher up until I left for the campaign trail. So I spent my entire adult life in, um, public education and classrooms, coaching basketball, as an assistant principal. And so I have a a perspective on the ground that so many teachers have and get frustrated when decisions are made for us, not with us. I'm Um, in a family of educators. I have heard that speech before. Don't don't get them started. Don't get them started. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so so the benefit here is that I understand I've been on the receiving end of this. I've been in the classroom and I've been told. um, Your funding has been cut. Your resources have been cut. uh, We need you. We've got to have more students in the classroom. You know, all of these things, all of these barriers are being thrown my way. And I'm being told to be innovative and be flexible and all of those things. But the funding is not flexible, Mm -hmm. right? And so as I think about moving through this coronavirus, yes, our schools need funding. I mean, here's the thing, if if we have schools that decide to go back in person to in-person classes, they may have to have a modified schedule. Well, that might mean that they have more bus routes, which is gonna cost more money, right? There might be a school that decides to say, we're going to start and go um, full digital just from the start and and start school that way. Well, they may not have as much funding going into transportation, but they may need to be able to use those dollars for technology and Wi-Fi access. Right. So not only do we need to make sure that we have the funding that we need to meet every student where they are, which is different for every single student. We also have to be willing to allow our school leaders and our classroom teachers uh, the flexibility to make those decisions about specific individual kids. You cannot individualize instruction if you're if you're not allowed to individualize funding also. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is as good a time as ever to say, you know best what your kids need. Here's the flexibility for you to be able to make that happen. We trust you, and that is that is the part that I know drive it used to drive me crazy. It drives teachers crazy now. It's the over um, the over regulating of their work by people who don't do their work. We just yeah. need to look at them and say, "Look, you're the expert. We trust you. Here's what you need to get it done. Knock it out of the park.
4: Voting is one of the most interesting manifestations of this conversation because it is both a long-standing problem we've been talking about since 2016 and before and also hyper relevant and you know we're on a bit of a deadline because we have this really important election coming out in November and we've watched these issues that already existed And then got accelerated because of the primaries as they rolled across the United States, just as COVID-19 was rolling across the United States. And so we have this perfect storm of something we knew was an issue that's really important in the future and that we've been watching play out in the present.
3: COVID has, I mean, it's definitely changed not only how Fair Fight looks at elections, but also just how elections are being conducted across the country. Uh, we've seen that in a lot of, in in from the caucuses to the primary elections that we're now seeing, um, there's been a lot of reconsideration that states have had to do. At Fair Fight, one of the, one of our, our, our main focus is ballot access, so that has, that has followed through, that our focus has not changed, but how we approach it and the steps that are necessary to ensure that um, eligible voters have the right to safely cast a ballot and have their voice heard, that has changed. And so one of the things that we have seen is that in many states, um, voting by mail has been expanded very quickly. And that is great. Um, It gives so many voters the chance. Not only we've seen it increase voter participation, but we've also we also see and we also know that it gives voters a way to cast their ballot and make sure their voice is heard safely from their homes. Um, and it also it helps keep communities safe as well. And so that's one of the biggest shifts that we've seen is just a voting by mail. And then we've also seen states adapting because there are voters that have to vote in person. And for these elections, we can't have just voting by mail because if you're a voter with a disability, if you uh, have inconsistent housing situation or you are unhoused, or if you uh, don't speak English as a first language, sometimes voting by mail isn't an option for you. And so we've seen states also adapting to making sure that polling places can be safe and secure. And we know that it's very important that those polling places stay open so that those voters also have a way to make their voices heard.
2: So as we were considering this episode, we wanted to make sure that we were thinking about all of the crises that we're facing as citizens right now. We've been talking a lot on the podcast about the systemic racism crisis, and about the coronavirus crisis. Climate change is the other crisis that we're all living through every day, even when it doesn't feel as present for us as other crises. And I think that we've given ourselves kind of a pass to feel better about that because of the economic shutdown. And it's not that we don't want you to be optimistic, but we do want to think about what's really going on in terms of climate change, what we've learned through COVID-19 around climate change, and what the next steps look like to really meet that crisis. And so here's Hal's conversation with Sarah about that.
5: On the climate crisis, you know, to me, when we see how large portions of the global economy have had to shut down, and it is true that we're seeing, you know, emissions reductions, but I think it's actually remarkable how little emissions reductions are seen. You know, the the numbers, you know, the year's not over yet and the numbers are still coming in, but, you know, we're talking about a 4 to 7% emissions reduction in 2020 versus 2019. And that's shocking given the amount of economic disruption we're going through and the economic downturn and just the actual shutting down of the economy and flights and uh, shipping and travel. And it's, it's just kind of remarkable. And to me, what that shows is that addressing the climate crisis isn't about um, denial and shutting things down, it's about changing systems. You know, our systems are so energy and emissions intensive that we really need to change how the systems work. And I think, so it points out how difficult this issue is, but I also think it really presents an opportunity because it it really points to we really need to think about how to change things and create the future that we want. And that doesn't have to be about giving things up. That means, you know, creating new opportunities. So, you know, like there's a very small example, but you know, here in our house, we, we had, you know, natural gas heat and we had a natural gas oven and stove and natural gas, hot water heater. And, you know, we, it's over time with government incentives. We we invested in our house and now we have solar panels and we're getting all those services through renewable electricity now. And it's not a sacrifice, you know, we're we're paying for energy now. Um, and the government was there to help. It had policies to help change these systems out. Um, and you know, so it's not a sacrifice at all. And and You know, hopefully at some point electric vehicles will be more affordable and I'll change that system too and won't be a sacrifice to like accelerate Mm -hmm. zero to 60 in four seconds as opposed to 10 seconds in my old Prius right now. So, you know, I think it's it's an opportunity where we can really think about these systems. And I think the other one that I think is really essential is that we're seeing right now how Systemic racism and systemic inequality. You know, we're seeing that African Americans are twice as likely to die from COVID-19 infection than white Americans. Um, and we've seen, you know, Harvard study that showed the connection between air pollution and COVID-19, and how all these issues are connected. And we really need to think about systemically how are we going to not just address the climate crisis, but how are we going to lower pollution in places where it's killing people? And how are we going to address environmental racism and how are we going to improve access to public health in frontline communities? So I think it's, these um, issues is are really, bringing those issues to the forefront and really making us think hard of a habit, how to shape our work and shape these policies going forward.
4: So we spent a lot of time with all of these people talking about the problems, but we didn't want to just stop there. (laughs) Uh, We really want to see, okay, well, it's not just accelerating problems. It's also accelerating and revealing solutions and shifts and trends and institutional reimaginings. And so what are the takeaways as we start to think about these issues and as we move into the future? And it was really exciting to hear from so many of them the possibilities that exist. Janice had some really amazing things to share about better care for our aging populations and how this is a real immediate need.
1: COVID's really kind of blown up this whole, this whole picture because um, kind of the whole foundation of these facilities and how we've built them and modeled them, it's just created this perfect little place for COVID to just run rampant, you know, um, unfortunately, there these places are usually fairly crowded, you know, people are, are not able to be kept far apart, they're older, they're frail, as I mentioned before, staff don't make a lot of money, so they have other jobs, so they're not just, you know, going to work and going home, they're going job to job um, facilities, giving ultimatums to their staff, you know, you can only work here, exclusivity kind of thing, because of the concern of spreading, so honestly, um, I know right now that um, the local facilities they're you know, they're not allowing visitors. They're spending a lot of money, um, to keep their staff safe. And there haven't been any big nursing home, um, problems here, like where I'm at, um, some on the other side of Sacramento, but they're spending a lot of money to keep it out. So I don't see how it is sustainable, honestly. Um, now that we kind of know what we know, um, but at the same time, I don't really know how how do we restructure this? Um, I know that with with facilities, I find that um, and. As I said before, I, I do hospice, so my um, you know, my patients are kind of a, a certain demographic, but people do a little better with smaller places um, in California. We do a lot of residential facilities in private homes where there are no more than six people. Um, and so there's a lot less traffic, less people working. Um, they're privately owned, um, and people thrive better in those in those smaller environments. And caregivers seem to do a little better. So I think maybe rethinking the size of these places. I think a lot of them will need complete re- redesign. You know, they're they weren't designed to keep these contagious diseases out. And even before COVID. Um, You know, these facilities experience outbreaks of contagious disease every year. You know, we have flu outbreaks. We have norovirus outbreaks. This is not a secret. Um, We just haven't, you know, found the right agent yet to really show us, oh, my goodness, you know, this is just dangerous. Um, So, I mean, I I wish that I knew. Um, And I have a lot of luxury in my job because I don't actually have to work in the facility. I have this, um, you know, like I said, the luxury of kind of sitting with these people and saying well this is what this ought to be this is what you should have and because i can do that you know i'm i'm just trying to help this person find the care that they need so that they can you know live out their life in comfort and have the support that they need so it's easy for me to say well these are the things that we want and and let, you know this is what we should have but i know that you know morale in these places is low it's very tough you know, you can get people in your home, but that doesn't mean that these people are ready to like care for a medically fragile person. Right. Right. And that's something that we face. A lot of these facilities, I'm not talking about nursing homes specifically, but more of like the assisted living from like those small ones that I had mentioned. Those are really, um, and I can't speak for every state, but in California, the regulations, you know, those are clearly, uh, they're um, social social settings, they're social models. Um, but you know, if you ever go and you tour one and you talk with them, you know, they're very. Um, they have a lot of information, lots of great sound bites about aging in place. That's a, a phrase that everyone likes to use. You know, pretty much growing old where you are, whether that's at home or in you know your facility or whatever. And that's that's tricky because eventually, you know, a medical. Uh, aspect is going to be needed. You're going to need medical people coming in. Um, and that's some of the things I know I said, I didn't know what to do earlier, but one of the things that I've talked about for a long time is kind of re rewriting how we um, give out home health services, like through Medicare, like people on home health, people who are homebound and people who are on hospice. Um, I think we should rethink some of these things, like specifically with hospice, we're always kind of married to this time bound, um, prognosis, this six month prognosis is what we have to look back at the way that Medicare writes it. Um, but I wish, especially for people with dementias, people with like Parkinson's and MS and these really, these neuromuscular disorders that take a long, long time that we could work with these people for a lot longer, because a lot of times, like with dementia, we can't even see a person until they're so sick that there's really, you know, there's really not much of a person left. It's, you know, they really have to be that you know, that declined for us to, for us to come in as hospice because of how long people live. It doesn't attack the part of your brain that keeps your heart beating and helps you breathe. It's, it's all these other things. So it doesn't actually, you know, kill you with the complication. So I think that if we could, yeah, keep people in smaller, more social-based models, but have an easier way to bring in that medical component, beef up our home health programs, our hospice. Programs, our public health presence, so that we're not having to take all these people into doctors' offices. We're going out to them, things like that. Um, I think would really, really help. Um, and I'm, I want to just say I don't any of these things that I'm saying is meant no way to disparage these facilities. I appreciate them so much. You know, when I when I have a, a client in crisis or a patient in crisis and You know, we don't have anywhere to go and we can find a good place, that's a relief like no other. And I'm so thankful for these people and my concern is in solidarity, you know, with them wanting to be the best caregivers that they can because most of them really, really do. They love their people, they love their jobs, um, but they're not given the tools that they need um, to do the job without, you know, suffering themselves and that's not fair.
2: Hal also talked about the hope budget that has to exist when you're confronting a crisis. I love that so so much. that phrase. I've been
1: thinking about
2: it constantly. And all of the things that we're doing today to support the industries that are harming our environment and how seeing what we do today really gives you uh, capital in that hope budget to know that we can fix this too.
5: When you're working on... Uh, issue as heavy and difficult as the climate crisis, you need to be thinking about um, uh, what Vice President Gore calls the hope budget. You need to be making sure you're talking about things in a way that are, um, you know, people can see how they can make a difference and how things will change and are changing, right? Um, So that's that's really, really important because there's no question it's a difficult Uh, transition. But I I think that this is, you know, this is eminently addressable. We we are lucky to live in the wealthiest country in the world. We have a system right now that is really geared towards fossil fuels. So we have a system where we subsidize oil, coal, and gas development to tens of billions of dollars a year. We uh, give really sweetheart deals on leasing federal lands and waters for fossil fuel development. They pay very low royalties and very low leak rates. We bend over backwards to have very <clears throat> lax environmental standards on methane leakage or water protections and other things. Um, and, you know, if, if we and then even and also you know infrastructure too. That like in terms of permitting for pipelines and other things, it's all the it's all very easy for the fossil fuel industry to build out that infrastructure. So to
4: to pause there and emphasize that I think that's really important. You know I think we always talk about the famous um, story where the the. Old fish swims by and tells the two fish how's the water, and they say, "What's water?" I think there's so many things with environmental policy, much like sort of the conversation we're having around policing, where there is water we are not aware of, and I think the narrative in America can be around climate that the market, you know, you have to un- you have to work against the market because clearly it's just better and cheap. Fossil fuels are better and cheaper and easier, um, and we're really undermining the market when that's not true there's all these incentives and institutional um systems and processes built in to mm-hmm. prop that yeah, industry absolutely
5: you know so the fossil fuel like you'll hear the oil industry say oh we don't get any subsidies we don't get any subsidies but the difference is the subsidies they've gotten have been in law for 100 years <laughs> you know, like when they're getting benefits for intangible drilling costs like that that's been around on the books forever and they don't have to renew it every so often like you do renewable energy tax credits. That's just in the books. And it's just kind of part of the, you know, it's it's part of the fabric of the system. And so it doesn't even feel like a subsidy to people. It's just it's just there. And there's countless examples. I mean just the way we set up, you know another example is when the coal industry, you know, wanted to lease federal land um the companies themselves would draw up the land that the maps of where they wanted to lease so they would say hey we want to lease this land and so put it up for bid and anybody can can lease this land but when they would do it they would of course construct it in this massive way that only one or two players maximum would be able to have the wherewithal to do this so it was really almost an invitation for no bid uh, contracting on on these on on the development of coal, so it's just like you see countless examples of this. It's just kind of baked into it. So, you know, we need to we need to shine a light on these things and make people aware of it and, and make those changes. But I think we're we're really capable of doing that. I think people see that. And it's not like, um, you know, oil companies are. Popular people understand that they're trying to use government systems to exploit us and exploit taxpayers for the benefit of their profits, and uh, I think that message is out there. Um, so I, I think there's real opportunity there. That like this is not we 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 see the issues very clearly. There's a lot of them, but this is pretty. You can explain this to people, and people understand it. Um, and I and I do think that there's. Just a growing appetite for really significant change that that people are really seeing these systemic issues and that we need to address them systematically as well.
4: And then, you know, so many of these changes with regards to education are just like voting. We're playing out in real time. People are having to think on their feet. And you'll hear right now, as we talk about with the lieutenant governor that can be really exciting. And we can see things that we thought we'd never be able to do without, oh, wait, the, we, we give them up, the sun still shines, and we can still um, achieve what we want to achieve in these areas. In the world of education, we have to decide what's important. And if it's, you know, if it's important enough uh,
0: for our kids to know, then we have to be able to teach it well. The problem is that we have, we have deemed uh, what's um, important in terms of content based on what we test. Mm. And those standardized tests will absolutely also drive a teacher crazy because none of us, I mean, I think about when I went to school to become a teacher, never once did I think about administering a standardized test. I thought about how to manage my classroom. I thought about how to meet the needs of my individual students. I thought about building curriculum and um, being able to deliver that curriculum in a way that meets my kids where they are. None of that involved them sitting down and circling B on a test at the end of the year that determined their value and mine. Mm -hmm. And it's outrageous that that's what we do. Um, I understand that standardized testing is it, it could be utilized in in good ways in certain scenarios. The way that we've chosen to to utilize it, which is to determine whether a curriculum is good enough, whether a student is good enough or whether a teacher is good enough is not the way it should be utilized. It should be utilized. um instead of in a summative way, in a formative way. Okay, so here's where our kids are. What do I need to do to move them forward? Not, this is the end of the road and that's the only shot this kid had to get this right and yeah, we're gonna move on, right? So as we build curriculum, Um, we've got to, again, I keep using the word flexibility, but I believe in it. Um, we've got to trust our education community to determine what's important. Um, and and to be, and to be given the freedom to teach it to our kids. I mean, you hear all the time, there are kids that are graduating high school and they've taken, uh, trigonometry and they don't know how to balance a checkbook or, um, you know, they can write a, uh, you know, a, a memoir, but they can't, uh, you know, write, uh, write out the address on an envelope. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so it's like we've gotten so uh, carried away with piling on, piling on, piling on in terms of curriculum that, it, you know, we really need to back up and take a really hard look at what is important and start from the foundation because the way kids learn has changed. They, they're, I mean, anything that they can Google, we do not need mm-hmm. to waste our time on in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're teaching kids how to think, teaching kids how to communicate. It's more of a how to than a what now, uh, mm-hmm. because in the on those standardized tests, they can Google the answers, not not during the test, but like that's information <laughs> that they could know, you know, just right. by they don't need to up. memorize it. Yeah, but to be able to, to present an idea and defend an opinion and uh, collaborate with others and be creative, those things are the things that should be filling up our curriculum and our instruction with our kids. Um, and I think any teacher would tell you that because that's why we became teachers. We became teachers um, to help kids learn, um, not to circle a letter on a test. <laughs>
4: Well, and it's just, this is what this moment has presented us, right? It's like a hard reset. Mm-hmm. So many things that we thought, well, how can we ever get away with it? Well, look, every kid in Kentucky skipped the standardized test last year, and we're all still here. We the all sun been. still rose. Look at that. <laughs> what a miracle. So, so I right. feel about the SAT, ACT. Look, it didn't happen, and we're all still here. So let's just not go back. Like, right. this has given us an opportunity to think what are these things that we thought we could never do without? or we would never be able to make progress on that now is quickly becoming our new reality. And so that's, I really want to ask you that, like, as you're sitting in your spot as a teacher, now as the Lieutenant Governor, and you're seeing this rapid pace of change as we adapt to this new normal, what are the things that are giving you hope where you thought, oh my gosh, I thought we'd never get to have a conversation about this. And now all of a sudden it's on the table.
0: Yeah. You know, just our ability right now to take this, uh, I mean, it is a crisis, but it's it's in a very very different way. It's also created this opportunity to open these lines of communication, like you're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, whereas it would have never crossed our mind to have complete digital learning for the end of the school year until we were forced to do it. And so we're at a we're at a crossroads here where we are allowed to, um, and pretty much uh, absolutely going to have to reimagine learning, yeah. and 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 for and for once and for all. Acknowledge that you do not have to be in a seat in a classroom to be learning. Mm -hmm. Um, If anything, the access that we have now to so many, you know, with the information age, uh, to so many other avenues, um, the great thing about that is that learning can happen anytime. Um, the hard thing about that is we now have to change the way that we evaluate learning, yeah. right? Yeah. And that we um and that we understand it to be. And that's hard for um, folks who spent their time in school in straight rows of desks with a pencil and pencil and paper paper and and doing those things. Um, but that classroom setup was for that time. In history when we were in the industrial age and everything was about assembly lines right and now it's much more collaborative and interactive and new age and that's what our that's what our classrooms need to be looking like Um, and those are the the opportunities that we should be creating for kids outside of the classroom walls
2: you know i want to ask you about the role of parents here because as you just mentioned with the pen and paper straight row of desk our imaginations (laughs) are very limited And one thing that this NTI period has really focused um, into sharp relief for me is how much better some of the ways Jane is learning are from the ways that I learned. If math had been taught to me the way it's being taught to Jane, my life probably would have taken a different course. You know, I just think about it, it really... I know people complain about it, but when you pay attention and see how she understands numbers in a way that I never did, uh, it's amazing. And so as you think about that reimagining of learning and what does learning look like here in this version of, of humanity, what is the best role for parents who are constrained by our own experiences and our own beliefs about our kids? Um, and our own needs from the school system, which involve a lot of things other than learning, how can we most constructively contribute to that dialogue? You know, that's a great question. Um, And and it looks different at different
0: ages. Certainly, I taught high school. And so um, there was not a lot of interaction um, that was initiated by parents on my end. Uh, Whereas in elementary school, you're pretty much gonna communicate pretty regularly with your kids' teachers usually. Uh, But what I would say to that is, it's a partnership. You know, we we talk now about in education, we call it school family community partnership. Um, And that collaboration is necessary because, um, you know, our parents and the adults in the community are, are the folks who are leading the community now. Certainly they're the business owners, the small business owners, um, those types of things. And so they are tuned into the the local economy. Um, to be able to create a partnership with your student's teacher is only going to open the door for your child a million times more than it already was. because. What that does is it creates a relationship, first of all. And so as a parent and a teacher, you get to know each other. Um, you get to know a little bit more about the child's, um, you know, home circumstances. And you can work together to individualize your child's learning. Uh You know, I'll give you an example. I had a student who really struggled in my U.S. history class. This was a million years ago. Um, She really struggled in my U.S. history class. She hated history. She didn't want to do it. She wanted to be a clothing designer. That's what she wanted to do. And she could not have cared less about U.S. history, which I get. So her mom came in and just said, listen, I've got to talk to you. She's struggling. I don't know what to do with her anymore, but this is what she loves. So I found a way to take the next lesson and incorporate what this child is really interested in into the product that she created about this time in history. So she's still learning uh, you know, the things that happened during that time period, but the product represented her own interests and her own passion. I would not have known that if her mother had not come and said that to me and had, and had we had that open dialogue. So creating a partnership with your child's teacher is so important for so many reasons, uh, but it's ultimately going to mean that your child gets way more out of their education than they would have if there was not a partnership there.
4: So since I forgot that you're a U.S. history teacher. And since you brought that up, I definitely want to hear your perspective on the current conversation in the United States and in the state of Kentucky about statues and the importance to history. I was thinking about this um, actually in the dental chair today as I visited my dentist because my dental hygienist was like, well, I don't know. I just feel like it's important to history. And I thought nobody learns history from a statue. No. no teachers like I today I assign that you go look at a statue to learn about history. Like that's a narrative, not history. But I want to hear your perspective because we've we've taken down the Jefferson Davis statue in the Capitol building in Frankfurt. Um, so as a history teacher, as you're hearing this conversation going on, what are you thinking? We, we did. Um, Governor Beshear
0: um, made the decision um, in response to everything that's been going on in, in specifically in Louisville, but across the country, uh, that it was time for Jefferson Davis to come down out of the rotunda in um, our state capitol. And I completely supported his decision to do that. I actually was there when it happened and I had my little four month old baby with me. So it was a really cool experience. Um, to, to watch history um, unfold, it was it was just very interesting to me. And um, you know, we we build statues uh, to honor um, historical figures from our past. Um, history is ever evolving. Our understanding, um, our uh, knowledge, our empathy is ever changing, and. When you look at that statue, regardless of what your feelings are about um, Jefferson Davis as a a human being, um, his representation on that statue was because he was the president of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. I think about every person of color who's been elected to office in Kentucky who's had to walk past that statue to their chamber. Mm -hmm. I think about every kid of color in Kentucky who has had to walk past that statue on a class field trip. And mm-hmm. to know that there is someone that's there being honored, and that because it's an honor to be in the rotunda um, looking down on you that thought you should be owned and didn't think you should be free. And that is not the kind of message that we need to be sending to other Kentuckians. That is not to say that Jefferson Davis is not a part of our history. It's not to say that because that statue is no longer in the rotunda, that he should be whitewashed from history because we've got to talk about it. We've got to continue to talk about um, the Confederacy and learn from all of those uh, events that happened in our past. But to honor someone um, at that level, we need to be able to make sure that every person in, in that walks through that, uh, rotunda, um, feels, uh, feels the, the same honor, uh, that we see from those folks. And so, um, I understand it. I think that there, there is very easily, and, uh, you know, a lot of people say it's an overreaction and that all of these things, you know, are happening too fast, but we, I mean. Speaking of a history lesson, those statues were not were not erected during the Civil War. It was yeah. many years later, in response to the Civil Rights Movement, um, and, the, and the fight for equality, as a, um, a, a as a harsh reminder of the past in the South. And so, um, I think a lot of people need to learn that too.
2: So, the action item that is most pressing for the vast majority of us listening to this podcast, is voting. Sarah mentioned we have this really important election coming up. Mm -hmm. And what Marissa is seeing at Fair Fight is a huge amount of enthusiasm on the part of Americans to take that action step. And so we wanted to end with Marissa giving us this message of hope and optimism about what happens next.
3: We're now having these elections, um, in the space of this national movement against systemic racism and police brutality. For example, Kentucky, um, I know a lot of people, there, there was a lot of talk that, that in Jefferson County, there was one polling place. And I mean, that is, that's unacceptable that that's where the majority of Black Kentuckians live. Um, and that people, people showed up in mass, they're grieving Breonna Taylor, They have been in the streets and they took their concerns to the ballot box. And so even in the face of the obstacles that we see that are put in voters way, um, to cast their ballots, we do see folks turning out in really, really unprecedented numbers. And I think that that, I mean, that's a good thing for democracy at its core. And I think it, it also brings attention to the fact that, that some of the things that we've seen happen in the primaries, some of these missteps and mistakes and and things that the headlines that we've seen, they cannot happen in November. And states need to act fast and they need to act now so that voters have safe access, they have equitable access, and more importantly,
4: course, we want to thank the Lieutenant Governor, Jacqueline Coleman, Marissa Pyle, Hal Connolly, Amanda Melton, and Janice Elliott for talking with us and sharing
2: their really, really valuable insights. These conversations were much longer and more substantive than you even heard today. And so we're going to share those conversations in full on Patreon for all of our supporters of the podcast. So look forward to seeing it's kind of like the equivalent of us showing our work right in a math problem here. Mm -hmm. Um, And thanks again to everybody who spent so much time with us.
4: So Beth, when we decided to really lean in and celebrate our 500th episode, I thought we should get something. For our audience. And so I thought, I know what we can do. We can get them the film version of Hamilton on the same day as our 500th episode. I mean, I just think that we are, I mean, I think it was a good present. I think it was thoughtful. I think it was generous. And the people seem to be very excited about this present.
2: (laughs) I like your willingness to take credit for that uh, coincidence Mm -hmm. of the universe. There are no coincidences, right? Everything aligns as it's supposed to. I thought it would be fun for us to talk about our
4: own journey with Hamilton. So I actually think I found it and listened to it. I didn't find it. I knew it was out there, but I was I thought, well, I want to see it live. And my friend Ellen was like, stop being dumb. Listen to the music so you know what so you can pay attention to everything else. If you're trying to figure out what they're saying in the songs, it'll be really hard to pay attention. And so I listened to it. I think I listened to it on the way to Chicago for our first podcast movement. That's when I listened to Hamilton for the very first time. And I I feel really lucky to have, like, experienced it before the tsunami of attention because I didn't know anything about his life. I'm sure people were concerned for my mental health because I was sobbing in the car listening to particularly the second half of the show. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember being in this bathroom in Chicago and, like, humming the song. Like one of the songs and this girl being like, "Is it? are you humming Hamilton? Like it was like, you know, it was like going viral at that moment. I was like right at the peak and everybody was so excited about it. And if you like you made new friends on the street over Hamilton, it was just how lucky I was to be alive.
2: This is a little background info for all of you listeners. As you know, Sarah has a lot of enthusiasm. It's one of her superpowers, her ability to channel enthusiasm. And so every time we are on a trip together somewhere, there is a thing that ha- that is this, the mm-hmm channel for that enthusiasm (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i too remember the first time you listened to hamilton (laughs) (laughs) because i remember the enthusiasm explosion uh when we met in chicago uh just like i remember when you got excited about armchair expert and when i when you got excited about hillary clinton's book (laughs) and and remember we went (laughs) to the
4: republican convention and we had to drive back super late oh, at so night. And so
2: late, yeah.
4: And I, the only, and I was like, I'll do it because I'll st- the only thing that keeps me awake is Hamilton. I listened and sang it the whole, but you had not heard it when I was playing it that late at night, but you fell asleep. And I thought, I felt like, like, it was both the only thing keeping me awake to drive and also I was like, I hate that she's getting this in fits and starts.
2: Well, I did listen to it all the way through soon after that. And I got more excited about it when the... Shiler's sisters were on the Super Bowl. Do you remember when they sang oh, My yeah. Country to Zippy? Is that right? I loved that. And then Chad and I got to see it here in Cincinnati when it came through. And it was just one of the few things that I think actually matches its hype. You know, yep. There, yep. it is yep. brilliant start to finish. It is thoughtful. It is funny. It is It uh, is provocative. The athleticism of the cast is on full display the entire time. Uh, the physicality of the show is just undeniable. And one of the coolest experiences we got to have is we went backstage at Hamilton on Broadway because of our awesome listener, Christina, and got to see costumes, even the laundry for the whole shebang. It was wonderful.
4: I mean, I cried. Like, You know, I have friends who saw the original cast and all this stuff, and that's amazing. And do I wish I'd been able to do that? Of course, but not very many people get to stand in the spot where Lin Manuel Miranda performed how many nights of Hamilton. And like, I just burst into tears. Let me tell you this moment I had last night that I thought, oh man, this is indicative of what a cultural phenomenon this this thing has been deserving of being a cultural phenomenon because it is ten kinds of brilliant. Is last night my kids and I sat down and we watched. Um, The cast and the Roots perform Helpless on Jimmy Fallon, and it's really cute, and they use, like, found instruments. It's adorable. And then we started working our way through Aaron Moon's Hamilton spreadsheet. Have you heard about this, this, I don't even know what to call it, like, work of a lifetime that Aaron Moon has put together? She's a spreadsheet (laughs) with all the YouTube, Hamilton, Tony performances, and, I mean, just all of it. So we're working our way through the spreadsheet, and we start with Lin-Manuel performing... You know, his like first draft, basically, of the opening number at the White House. Have you seen this before? before? Yes. Okay. And it's so funny. Like, you're watching it and he's doing it and people are giggling. And Amos says, why are they laughing? And I'm like, because it's hard to convey. Like, but it was like hard to convey to him because this was not a thing. The idea that you would write a Broadway show with rap about Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton who this sort of forgotten founding father, it was crazy. <laughs> like, and you can hear the crowd being like, Haha. and then the second part gets so intense and they stop laughing. And, but it was just funny hearing him say, why are they laughing? <laughs> and I think that the, in particular, the like the idea that you would, I think that the brilliance of Hamilton is not just Hamilton, it's the brilliance of Lin-Manuel going, hey, you know how we're always trying to squeeze in more storytelling to a Broadway Musical, what if we rapped? Like <laughs> it was staring us all in the face, you know? And I just, it was really funny just trying to convey to him, like it didn't used to be this, its own planet. Like he was, he was an explorer, he was an adventurer in that moment. He had no idea how they were going to react, like, or how people would treat it. And I it just, and it's so magical to me that that moment is caught on film for us all to watch and enjoy
2: and to have our kids be like, but wait, why are they laughing? <laughs> Do you feel nervous about the movie?
4: Oh, no, not even. This is not Cats. You know, like they're not they didn't make it for a film. They just filmed the Broadway performance. No, I'm not nervous. Are you nervous?
2: No, I don't think so, but I don't think I'm quite as invested in it as you are. I think that's probably an understatement. I mean, I really love it. Um, but but I don't have the kind of emotional connection to it you have. I just think of, like, all the times when I'm really excited about something, I always have that tiny bit of anxiety, like, please live up to my expectations. Please be what I want here. Oh, no. See, I'm like, the part of my
4: enthusiasm is I'll just, you know, even if it was a disaster, which I am, I have zero percent worry that it will be, I would still defend it. Like, my enthusiasm just shifts and morphs. And, my like, <laughs> once I'm pretty into something, it would be very difficult to disappoint me. It's like when people try to criticize Oprah. Get out of here. Just keep keep walking. That's all I got to say.
2: Well, we hope that you all uh, really enjoy that after you listen to our 500th episode on Friday. It's a perfect pairing. It's like a
4: flight. And until then, of course, we'll be in your ears tomorrow over The Nuance Life. We took a really, well, we started in a very pragmatic place talking about how to get your money back. If your travel gets canceled, there's a guest appearance by my husband, Nicholas Holland. And then we talked about mowing the lawn. And then we just went. Off on a path that is less pragmatic and more philosophical. But you know what? That's that's how we roll. So I think you'll all enjoy it. So until then, keep a nuanced, y'all. Pantsu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the
2: composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen,
6: David McWilliams,
2: Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph,
6: Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia,
2: Lori
4: Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader,
6: Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson.
4: To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com
2: slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.